0: Is that a that hat? hat? That's a hat, lady. And she got a friend. That's a crow, daddy. Am I Dr. Sleep? Am I Jack Torrance? Bitch, I go to sleep. Call me Sleep Daddy. Here's Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry that I was a little bit late getting to the uh, microphone. I had a, a bathtub lady tried to get me. I had to put her in my mind box.
1: Oh, nice. <laughs> De- dealing with the bathtub ladies box is, is, uh, is a rough deal.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm, I, I mean, I also I decided to like microdose while I watched Dr. Sleep, which is probably so <laughs> unhealthy. Uh, oh. Welcome to my views are my own special episode. My reviews are my own where we take a deep, dark dive into, uh, in this case, The Shining and Dr. Sleep. My co-host today is Brandon Case. You might remember him from episode, I want to say 36, 39. It doesn't I'm matter. Right Just go look for it. It's called 2,653 miles from Canada to Mexico. But here's the craziest thing. So I watched Dr. Sleep for the first time uh, last week. It's been out for a while. It came out like in 2019. It's the sequel to The Shining. And when, as soon as I was done with it, I was like, I liked that better than The Shining. Not only that, I think it made The Shining a better movie. So I immediately decided that was a can of worms I wanted to open, especially because people just fucking love Stanley Kubrick and cannot stand anyone ever questioning his genius. So I hit you up to bring you on and do this, man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, My first question, just right off the bat, I just want to ask you, did you have a, because I know when I just mentioned that to you, I was also, I just said, hey, will you come on the podcast and do the review? I didn't say, hey, what do you think about what I just said? Uh, so <laughs> this will be my first time hearing your opinion.
1: Right. Yeah, no, um, I think it'll be a fun uh, conversation. You know, as you say, uh, my views are my own. We'll, we'll probably have some dissenting opinions uh, on on that whole thing. I do rather like uh, Shining um, just from an analytical writing perspective, because that's kind of like what I do. Um, but the uh, Dr. Sleep was interesting and will provide some valuable points on of conversation i think
0: (laughs) i guess i should say a couple things off the top too that this is going to be you know this is this is a film uh podcast episode there this is just this is film analysis we're not going to be bringing a lot from the books into this but having said that i will just i mean i won't there's no way to not mention the books at all it has to happen some but we're not here to discuss the books but, and, and awesome,
1: because I, I have not read them. <laughs> oh,
0: no, neither have I. I. Just that I, it's just, well, for one thing, I know that, you know, Stanley Kubrick has a well-documented history of not doing, like taking the, taking a book from an author and doing something with it that the author either absolutely hated or disagreed with, or depending on the case, uh, when he uh, adapted uh, Lolita from Nabokov. Nabokov. Uh, He was very, very upset with that, like, and he fought them the entire way through production, trying to make them stop doing it the way they were doing it, because he was, you know, to him, he was like, this is a story about, you know, a a sexual predator who you're hearing the story through his firsthand account that he's supposedly telling a jury. And it's supposed to be an unreliable narrator. You're not supposed to sympathize with him. And Stanley Kubrick just took it and turned it into a love story. Which <laughs> I think many people since then have found, you know, but this is this is not about Lolita, but just in that same vein, you know, he, when he did The Shining, Stephen King was very upset and he's like, this is not the story I wrote.
1: Uh, right. And the Lolita themes come, come, uh, come and go in this.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of child murder in both in both movies.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and bizarre uh sexual themes too in interesting ways which get deeper in the uh the di- the uh, discussion there for sure but
0: before we go too much f- more further too, I you have a personal story that's uh kind of links into this but I, I think I should give a really quick formal introduction to the two films before we start going like uh and that's The Shining is a 1980 psychological thriller horror movie produced and directed by Stanley Kubrick, who at that time was considered, you know, a genius, and they would let him do whatever he wanted. And that's what he definitely did with that film. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He was, was co-written with Diane Johnson. The film is based on Stephen King's 1997 uh, novel, The Shining. It stars Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, Scatman Crothers, and Danny Lloyd. I actually kind of think it's interesting that, uh, in that movie, uh, uh, Jack Nicholson's character is named Jack, and Danny yeah. Lloyd's character is named Danny.
1: Yeah, I noticed that too. Uh,
0: that was just a quick like overview of that film, and then Doctor Sleep, of course, a 2019 supernatural horror film uh, directed by Mike Flanagan, who I'm just now learning, like getting ready for this episode. I was learning a lot more about Mike Flanagan, and the more I learn, the more I like him. If, if it wasn't enough, the fact that I loved Dr. Sleep, I've learned to like him more just as a director of other, other things he's done that I wasn't aware that he was the guy. Anyway, based on the 2013 novel, Dr. Sleep by Stephen King, the sequel to uh, The Shining, and this one stars Ewan McGregor as a full grown-up Danny from The Shining. Uh, Rebecca Ferguson, she plays Rose the Hat, who I was calling hat lady through most of the movie and fucking uh, out of nowhere. Uh, watch out Hollywood. Kylie Curran plays the uh, young girl who's kind of the new Danny and great actress. I mean, I, that was, there's a particular thing I don't like in, in film or television, which is the precocious child. Uh, it can be done so poorly and she did it so well. It was actually great the whole time. And Cliff Curtis, he's the guy that plays uh, Doctor Sleep's Billy? best friend. He's the best Billy, friend, I think, yeah. the guy with like that uh, gets him into AA and gets him an apartment. Carl Lumbly as Dick Halloran. and great job. I would say all all those act, all the people that uh, had to play a role where they played a character from the original movie did fantastically well. The ones that had to play them in their same age, the woman that had to play uh, Wendy Torrance. You know they don't look exactly alike, but it doesn't matter. You know who it is, and it works really well. Henry Thomas—that's the guy that does Jack Nicholson, superbly well. <laughs> anyway, I'm already like off the very off the very jump. I'm just sitting here like heaping praise on Doctor Sleep and I'm like The Shining. I was like, yeah, The Shining came out in 1980. It was directed by Stanley Kubrick. He was an asshole. He made Lolita. He's a sexual predator. <laughs> Moving on, Dr. Sleep, <laughs> Mike Flanagan, shooting Rising Star, Kylie Curran, Rising Star, Ewan McGregor, so much more handsome than Jack Nicholson. I didn't, say, I didn't say all that. Before we start an overview, speaking of overviews and overlooks and Timberlines, you shared the story brief list, briefly back when you were a guest on the podcast. But I was wondering if you would share the story again uh, when you happened to visit the Timberline Hotel uh, where they shot The Shining.
1: Yeah, yeah, they they use Timberline for all the exterior shots, at least, and it is an interesting place. And and I intersected it at a very uh, interesting time for me. Like that was that was about two thousand miles into the Pacific Crest Trail, and I had, um, I had just come back to the trail because I had to get off for about a week when my dad died, and I had to go settle his estate in Idaho, which was like this crazy, you know, huge thing for me, um, obviously. But so I had gotten back on trail and um, and I had been, uh, this this entire time, the wildfires had been like chasing me north uh, all the way up through California and then through Oregon. And I was staying about a week ahead of them. And so um, going off and dealing with all of my dad's stuff took me off trail for about a week and all of those wildfires just caught right up to me. So I came back to the trail and it was just like saturated with like smoke and this like really hazy kind of grainy atmosphere and so timberline lodge is like right up on the side of mount hood so you know, um, i was like i was super beat up you know emotionally getting back on trail after a long absence and you know a ton of eating like i was really heavy and sluggish and you come up mount hood and like the Timberline's just like sitting on the side of the mountain and it's this sprawling hotel that's like super eerie and really cool and atmospheric and uh, because of all the smoke in the air, it actually had a very similar look, almost that grainy film look that the uh, that it has in the actual original Shining movie. So it was like walking into the Shining. It was like oh, it was, it was su- super weird <laughs> and crazy. And so I actually went down and like investigated the hotel and stuff, and it w- it was awesome, uh, real wild, and and really fit the uh, the strange and dark tone and all of the emotional resonance that. I was carrying with me as I was trying to like deal with all of the, you know, baggage from my dad and, and him passing and um, and all of that. And then you have this like smoke and this craziness. And it's just like this super vivid place right up on the edge of the mountain. It, it was it was wild to visit in person, especially at that junction in my life.
0: You know, um, <clears throat> just here's like the thing about that, too, like the fact that you you briefly mentioned that to me uh, when I hit you up to be on this uh, movie review. But I mean, you had told me the story before. And of course, I probably, rem- you know, I think I right. might have the I might have the shining a little bit, though, because I finished the movie, <laughs> I, f- I finished Dr. Sleep and I was like, this was good. I want to do a movie review on this, but I don't want to just do a movie review on this. I want to compare and contrast it to the original film, The Shining, because I think that Dr. Sleep is so good and I can make an argument that, like I said, I can make an argument that it perhaps is even better or at the very least. It It finishes the loop, and it makes the shining into a full story. If you know, if the shining is the trauma, Dr. Sleep is the healing, and it, it's the whole life. It's the whole life of Danny. But uh, I finished watching it, and I was like, well, I was like, all right, you know would I, I always bring on a past guest when I do one of these. It's not, I don't find a new person. It's always someone that's been on before. And I just picked you because people love you. They loved your episode. <laughs> and the first thing that I thought was like, people would like to hear Brandon again, just because they, because his episode, your episode was so well received and like shared so much It's one of the most listened to episodes I have ever made. So Mm. I was like, Oh, well, I'll just bring Brandon because Brandon's popular. That was my, that was my (laughs) thought in my head. It wasn't like, it wasn't anything else. And then I hit you up and I was like, yo, you want to do a movie review? Uh, Dr. Sleep, the shining. And you're like, Oh yeah. You know, I, I went to the Timberline hotel, like, Like you said, like right after your dad passed away and you were dealing with all of that grief and all that shit during the forest fires surrounded by ash and like the sky is, the sun is obscured by smoke. And I was like, all right, man, I I think, (laughs) I think there was a shining involved in that, man. Maybe I'm one of the people that have like a weaker shining, more like a Jack Torrance, not, you know, not a Danny, like I can't read people's minds, but. We can get into that later, too. Uh, en-
1: enough to be worried that Rose is probably coming for you.
0: <laughs> I feel like, <laughs> well, you know how she, she's like, they, well, that's why they go for children, because they have like pure uh, shine and pure steam.
1: Yeah. I feel
0: like the True Knots, which that's the name of her little band of roving energy vampires.
1: <laughs> Murderers. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I, I feel like if they were to find me, they would be, they would find me distasteful because at this point my shine must be severely tarnished (laughs)
1: likewise
0: (laughs) let's take people on a little journey we won't go crazy with it but let's uh do a quick overview and i think we should just do it in chronological order we'll start with stanley kubrick's the shining and seamlessly move into dr sleep and just tell the story as it goes analyze discuss say that we love or say that we don't love. And then as always, at the end of our movie reviews, there's a rating system at the end. It's uh we rate it on plot, uh, acting, action, and a fourth category called wow factor can really be whatever you want it to be. Sometimes that can be the deciding factor, but we'll give each movie their their individual rating system. And at the end we'll compare and we'll see uh, who got the highest score. So one thing I would like to bring up is just the very opening scene of the show. Like, I've been saying a lot about how I love Dr. Sleep and that I, th- that I liked it better than The Shining. <clears throat> I don't want anyone to get me wrong and think that I don't like The Shining or, or that I don't respect it. And as a matter of fact, uh, before we did this, I did a rewatch. I just watched The Shining again. And this time going into it, I read some articles, did some research uh, so that I would be alert to be looking out for the things that I'm supposed to appreciate it's not an easy film necessarily, it's actually, it's a, it's a film that's meant to be watched several times so that you can see all these like really weird secret hidden things. Um, one of the things I find the most interesting is that the hotel itself has been recreated by architects or the the interior of the hotel. And they found that it's an impossible structure that if you were to try to try to build the overlook hotel based on all the shots from the movie, you would just create a maze and hallways that go nowhere, doors that go nowhere, uh, so on and so forth. Anyway, opening scene. Yep. We're supposed to be in Colorado, although we know it was in California because you've been to the real place, but <laughs> supposed to be in Colorado. Little yellow car, helicopter overhead shot. Uh, ends up being one of the most uh, overused movie tropes of uh, like opening scenes to a horror movie, I think, of all time, is the car driving through the woods shot from a helicopter.
1: Yeah, and and he did a really epic job of that cinematography where you're just like swooping in through and it's unsettling and also beautiful and then you have the musical score in the background. Like it was uh, uh it's it's a powerful opener. I can see why it got, you know, reused uh, over and over again, including in in Dr. Sleep, he used that exact uh scene later in the movie when they return. Yeah. That's
0: Oh man, I, I'm gonna have I'm have, gonna have such a hard time getting through the Shining <laughs> section without, of this without referring to Doctor Sleep. Over, because what I find so amazing about Mike Flanagan's work is if you think about what a, what a challenge he faced himself, with, he chose to do it. He said, "I'm going to uh, I'm going to make a movie based on Doctor Sleep, the, the book. I'm going to make sure that it stays true to the book, The Shining." So that there's coherency between, you know, so that it's coherent and it makes sense. But it's going to be a sequel to Stanley Kubrick's The Shining, and I'm going to keep that as canon. So anything that happened in The Shining exists in this universe. And he managed to marry it all together. And he made. And Stephen King was happy. I was happy. You seem happy. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He had to walk that line because those are very different fan groups that have very charged opinions, and so he was trying to unify that that whole structure which is not an easy task by any means
0: and i I love that you brought up fan groups because i think that is exactly like a big like a big case to be made here is that there i think there are people that are the 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 stephen king camp that are that may have like actually not liked the original shining that much because they're like well this is not what stanley king or that's not what stephen king intended and then, of course, there's the Stanley Kubrick people, you know, that are going to be like, anything Stanley Kubrick does is genius. Deal with it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just thought of another movie. Uh, Get
1: Out. Oh, God, I love that movie. Like that, that's, that's one of my favorite movies for sure. They
0: do the, uh, I think, I'm think i almost certain, if I recall correctly, the opening scene to Get Out is a helicopter shot of him in the car. Or at least it's, at least it's used in the film, like when they're going out to wherever her parents live. Mm-hmm yeah
1: yeah no it became a trope for a reason and you know you can get into the symbolic symbolic stuff behind that it's like going into the woods and you know like um you know there's there's a lot of journey into like a dark and interesting place and sets up the atmosphere quite well so i can see why it's been uh, used over and over again throughout time
0: yeah and I, I i know we're jumping around a little bit but who gives a shit man like i mean we, we're talking <laughs> about cinematography right now and uh the cinematography of The Shining is probably one of the most well-documented movies of all time for that reason. And it's, uh, one of the main reasons is the use of the steady cam, which had not been really, I know that it had been invented before. Like that's not the first movie to use it, but I think it's the first movie to use it to that effect. And that's, uh, for people that are wondering kind of what I mean by that, it's, uh, the scenes where Danny's on his big wheel and he's riding around the, uh, the overlook hotel through all the hallways and the camera like perfectly stays on him the entire time. And, uh, steady cams have changed quite a bit. Uh, like a modern steady cam is actually a little bit more, it's a little bit different cause it's on a gyroscope. So you can just hold it on your body and you can walk with it and it won't shake. But the, the steady cam of the 1970s was on, was on wheels. It was a kind of like more of a cart, still really fantastic. Uh, um, yeah.
1: And, and it, it created such an awesome effect, especially in those scenes that you referenced, because you're you're shot. It's shot so low to the ground behind that big wheel, uh, which changes the perspective on the hotel a lot. And then you're also following uh, uh, Danny through these blind curves. And it's super unsettling, you know, because because you can't see even Danny, you know, is going to is going fast enough that it'd be hard for him to see what's around the curve, but because you're actually lingering behind him, like it, it's such a, like almost like a claustrophobia that's built in motion, which was kind of really cool and bizarre. And they pioneered so much as far as, you know, again, these these kind of shots and and technologies that actually moved forward through time. Like it was uh, a foundational work in, in those regards. So hundred percent agree. The center of photography was just awesome.
0: I was gonna say, I agree with you 100% too with the tight corners. That's what uh, with this rewatch of The Shining that I just did is where I truly appreciated those shots the most. And it's not just it doesn't only happen with Danny, but those are the most visceral and they're the most fun to watch. You know, like but they they do it with everyone. They do it with uh, uh, Shelley Duvall, uh, who plays Wendy Torrance when, you know, they do a lot where she's running up a, a flight of stairs or something. And you're behind her and you don't see what's around the corner until she's turned the corner as well. And it's always so tight. There's no.
1: Okay, so the the whole concept of the maze, which you brought up as well, like the how the internal architecture is, is literally impossible. Like I, that was all super uh, intentionally done, and and you know the maze is like a symbol that gets over, used over and over again throughout the the piece. But um, but yeah, like that that overall feeling of that they um, did as far as being unsettled in the reality of this hotel and it becoming something more than um, you know like this physical structure that has logical coherence like that that was one of the things that I thought that they did really well as uh, as well like those big wheel shots like you actually have Danny jump between floors you know with perfect like um, like uh, the the actual way that it's shot there's no transition but he actually jumps um, like between different floors that we've seen in the past and it's just super disorienting you're watching it and and those are all those like subconscious details that you don't really pick up but it just that movie makes you so uncomfortable for all of these like little detailed reasons that are really very fascinating
0: and there's so many theories behind some of that too because it's like for me and this not once again like i said it's almost impossible for me not to reference dr sleep now that it exists because that's what i really this is what i liked about dr sleep so much is it answered so many questions for me or it put them it it brought the Stephen King universe into it more solidly and then answered questions that the shining just leaves open. And I think that was maybe Stanley Kubrick's intention was for you to be like, there, you know, what is in the mind of man, you know, but like, cause- right.
1: And, and like that discomfort was definitely intentional. And it's also probably one of the major bones that I have to pick with the shining is like, I think that because he he wanted to leave it super open, super uncomfortable, super, you know, chaotic inside of the maze, you know, open to interpretation, all that kind of stuff. But, but I, I do agree that that went a, a step too far into ambiguity where um, like I would have enjoyed the movie more if there were greater resolution, which I think, um, you know, Dr. Sleep really tried to do the opposite as far as like knitting some of those things back together where you can actually you know, gain a sense of fulfillment that was almost completely absent in *The Shining*. Like, there, there's very little from like a uh, a structural standpoint that's that's uh, satisfying and and fulfilling in *The Shining*. Like, it just leaves you super uncomfortable. And uh, so, so yeah, so it's it's really interesting to compare the two on on that level.
0: Absolutely, and that's uh, and you know, and I love to read, and you know, like I and i've read some stephen king i just haven't read these books uh, mm-hmm. but i might after this but just because i i actually <laughs> ended up inadvertently learning a lot about the books themselves uh while i was you know reading articles and researching you know and, and interviews with people and what they said about things that had happened with this film and one of the the biggest points and this is, uh once again uh more shout outs to mike flanagan for seamlessly making this work especially in the scene where Danny finally has to confront his father when his father has become part of the overlook hotel. He's another trapped soul. Uh, And he had to make some hard, hard decisions too, because he had, he, like not only did he try to do the Stephen King version, but he tried to do the Stanley Kubrick version and he made it work because Stephen King's version of Jack Torrance, Jack Torrance is not an evil man. He is in fact possessed by and a uh, supernatural force, an evil hotel.
1: Wendy, uh, let me explain something to you. Whenever you come in here and interrupt me, you're breaking my concentration, you're distracting me, and it will then take me time to get back to where I was. Understand? Yeah. Fine. And we're gonna make a new rule. Whenever I'm in here, you hear me typing whether you don't
0: hear me typing what the the fuck you hear me doing in here when I'm in here that means that I am working that means don't come in
1: how do you think you can handle that yeah fine why don't you start right now and get the fuck out of here
0: and it even goes deep if you want to get further into the book mythology you can i won't go that far into it but there's actually both these stories tie into the dark tower series as well there's a uh, and these stories actually tie into uh it and a couple other ones too uh even the green mile to a certain extent because john coffee has the shining mm-hmm. and uh obviously the children in it have the shining that's how they're able to kill the that's how they're able to kill it is they have a bit a little bit of shine well way, yeah. way too far to that.
1: <laughs> no, no, and and it's good, and uh, and like you know, in at the end of uh, the Shining, the book version or whatever, like you know, uh, he, the main character is able to you know kind of fight the possession and and regain some of his humanity. He has a redemption arc, uh, which is much more of a um, you know, classic you know story structure for a novel. You know, like you actually give some amount of. Closure and you know, emotional journey and resolution and all of that kind of stuff. And then like Kubrick was just like, Yeah, we're gonna dispense with all of that. We're just gonna leave you super uncomfortable at the end of this. <laughs> so so yeah, no, it's it's really interesting. And then how that ends up working out with uh Dr. Sleep too, like, which I'm sure we'll get to if we progress down the chronology at all. <laughs>
0: I think like precisely to what you were just saying, like you kind of sparked a new, like, I was going to bring this, I'm still going to get back to Jack Torrance and Stephen King's vision of him, but you did make me think, and this is a little bit of, it's how Stephen King writes, and it's the reason why he's the most adapted writer of all time. They've made more movies out of Stephen King books than anybody else, you know, and I think for a while there, until, uh, until J.K. Rowling came out with the Harry Potter stuff, he was also, like, the highest paid author, I'm fairly certain, I didn't uh, research that, but, it seems right. so right. I feel like it would be silly to, for that to be wrong.
1: <laughs> yeah, there, there are a few of them up there, especially once they get into like ghost writing and have like multiple like a like a stable of authors that are working under them that are publishing under a name. Um, uh, so there are some of those that are like way up there, but he is like prolific and super, super widely read, like top of the, the writing world as far as like I've... all that goes.
0: You know, I'm actually I'm new to that concept. I was just learning about that. I think that's uh, James Patterson is he one mm-hmm. of them. Uh, he made all his success and then he was able to hire a staff of ghostwriters and they, they just publish under his name because his name is now the brand rather than him, right. the author. That's fucking amazing. Like a very famous painter, uh, especially people that do like large pieces, also sculptors. They make their name and then after that, they hire a staff of 30 people and they don't do shit again, but put their <laughs> name on it. <laughs>
1: Yeah, you become a director or, you know, if that, like you're you're like the little emperor of this whole like, you know, village of writers that are producing content for you, <laughs> which would not be a horrible place to be in. Honestly, I think James Patterson is like, I think last time I looked, he was worth like most of a billion dollars, like, you know, wow. 300 or 500 million or something like that.
0: I can't name a single James Patterson book. That's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but uh, I wanted to get back to uh, what I was trying to, because. You made me think this, and I want to I want to get it out before I lose the thought. Uh, Hmm. And it was in in reference to to Jack Torrance, and also in reference to how Stanley Kubrick took it. And it's the the way that Stephen King writes his his books are very theatrical to begin with. So the book it's like the reason they're so adaptable and why people adapt them so much too is because the book itself is already a movie. Like all you got to do is just you know get a little (laughs) get a screenwriter. Turn it into yeah. a script, and you've got to like you don't have to do anything other th- other than in my opinion, interpret it correctly, because Stephen King can be interpreted <laughs> correctly, and you can make a movie like the Shawshank Redemption oh, which so good. I think that, in my opinion, may be the best Stephen King movie, maybe I, mean, I don't know, but it's up there. probably
1: my favorite for sure.
0: but you can also make a really piece of shit Stephen King movie if you know if that's <laughs> what happens, uh, but back to. Uh, the Shining, Jack Torrance. Uh, what uh, Stanley Kubrick's vision of Jack Torrance is not that he's just a troubled guy that's a, you know maybe has has a little bit of shine and is taken over by the hotel and and ultimately the hotel is the evil force that does everything wrong. Stanley Kubrick's version, it could be interpreted if you want to interpret it that way. You could interpret the hotel as being not even sentient you could interpret it as that Jack Torrance is an abusive father and he's, you know, he's fucking nuts. And he, the alcohol thing is very vague, whether or not he actually gets alcohol. Cause once again, like you said, the uh, Stanley Kubrick makes it so vague, whether, what, whether the booze is real or not.
1: Right, And, and the alcoholism takes like a big role in the book from, from what I've read. And, um, and yeah, there's, there's a, there's almost an entirely secular version of interpretation for The Shining where, you know, there's not, you, you you can just toss out pretty much everything that happens that's metaphysical and still have a movie in which people are just going crazy and hallucinating. Like there, there are only a few counterpoints to that. Like, um, like the mom uh, showing a direct point of view scene of the mom seeing the blood come out of the elevator which Danny also sees and the, there are some things like that that make it that push it beyond the spectrum of just like physicalism um, which is one of the bones that that I have to pick with it like if uh, I think like he probably played the line between those two um, to where you can interpret it like that but not quite and then you can interpret it like you know a possessed hotel but also not quite like it just doesn't fill either of those categories at all and Um, And so that actually produces this like weird, chaotic amalgam, which is really uncomfortable and really worked for a lot of people. But for me personally, I would have enjoyed either both of those being able to be absolutely true or at least, um, you know, not being quite as muddy. Like there's a little bit of mud that's that's in the middle of that. So it's really interesting how all of that stuff worked out.
0: And uh, not to sit here and be the you know, and do my white knight shit, you know, and so on and so forth. But honestly, I really could have done without uh, some of the misogynism that Stanley Kubrick brings to the table. And I, man, I, I, you know what? I just can't stop from doing it. But Mike Flanagan, when he brings, <laughs> uh, he, I mean, first of all, he, he, the actress that plays Rose the Hat, Rebecca Ferguson, but Ferguson, yeah. yeah, So I mean, he, he, may, he, you know, she's a super confident or competent uh, villain. Uh, it, it's, and it's cool, too, because, you know, she's she's got a silly thing because, you know, she has a magic hat and <laughs> she's in a silly group of like, like traveling vampire people. But the point is, and then, of course, uh, Abra, who is the new Danny, you know, she's the most powerful shine that has ever existed. I could go on and on and on about that. But uh, I think, you know, one thing you, one very extremely important that you can bring up is that Mike Flanagan certainly did not psychologically abuse his actors. Or, you know, have no respect for them, <laughs> or uh, sleep deprive them, or have them on set for an eight hour day and keep them for sixteen hours to do a thousand takes, and that's what he did, and that's what Stanley Kubrick did to Shelley Duvall, is because he was like, I want her to seem upset, and <laughs> in my in my opinion, I think that she could, she's a good actress, and she could have just, he could have just been very clear with her what he wanted that scene to be, and then she could have acted it. She didn't need to like in real life be going through uh, an actual trauma. Uh,
1: right, yeah. And, and uh, Dr. Sleep also has like a lot more strong female characters, like the, you know, they're just like really strong characters, which are awesome. Um, so I always appreciate that in the movie. And, uh, and that was definitely uh, rather lacking in The Shining. So the <laughs> reduction of misogyny, point up for Dr. Sleep.
0: <laughs> but I guess, um, you know, and. This does this does move us forward in describing the shining in the in the Stanley Kubrick um, vision. Jack Torrance. Uh, and, and another thing I would say about this movie, too, is this movie is practically almost entirely a vehicle for Jack Nicholson's acting. It's just it's like it's almost like they made a movie and they're like, how can we make a movie where it, we just show what a great actor Jack Nicholson is and do almost nothing else? <laughs> uh, but. There's a scene there when they're driving up to the overlook, when he's moving his family up there to be, you know, and to be, he's going to be the winter caretaker of this isolated hotel that no one can get to them because of the uh, snowfalls and avalanches that keep this place isolated for five months out of the year. They're in the car and uh, they're, ask, they're talking about the Donner party, like the, the famous, you know, pioneer people that ended up eating each other in, the, in a snowstorm. And I don't know how old Danny's supposed to be, but I think he's around five. And he's like, "What's the Donner Party?" And he's like, "Oh, that's uh, these people that got caught in the snow and they had to revert to cannibalism and uh, to survive." And then Shelly Duvall or Win- or Wendy Torrance, of course, is like, "Hey, don't say that to him. You know, he's so young." And he's like, and Danny goes, "No, I saw it on TV." And this is the first time where you see that Jack Nicholson or the Jack Torrance is a bad father. Uh, Jack Torrance's response after telling his kid a story that you know he he might be a little too young to be hearing, and right. he goes, he goes, "No, I saw it on TV," and he goes. You hear that, honey? He saw it on TV, and it's like, yeah, you can just tell that he has so much contempt for his family, and right. and it continues in uh in this second viewing after, like I had said, like I wanted to go into this once again. I wanted to give it a fair shot and not just be a flat out, I like Doctor Sleep better. I'm like, I'm gonna give The Shining the fairest shot. I'm gonna I'm gonna read the articles. I'm gonna read the interviews. I'm gonna go in here looking for these things that people say, and. The stuff where, like, where people say, like, to to watch Jack Nicholson because he, like, Stanley Kubrick did do an interesting thing where he doesn't focus on someone's face, even though there's something important happening there. And there are times where, uh, you know, there's a lot happening in the scene, and you're not looking at Jack Torrance, but if you were, you would notice that he would be looking at Danny with just pure hatred.
1: yeah no it's uh it's pretty crazy the um and you know whether you know whether there are merits for setting jack nicholson up or not the he did a fantastic job of acting he plays the worst guy like that that contempt and malevolence is there from like the very beginning which i think was one of the bones that uh stephen king had about this was you know he wasn't uh Jack Torrance wasn't supposed to be such a negative character from all the way from the beginning. But but from the very outset, you can just feel it in, in Jack Nicholson, like he, that that twist, that like psychotic kind of like break element to him. And and it's like it's palpable and uncomfortable, and he does like a fantastic job of acting. But um, but it is definitely structured to uh to highlight that. And then you know what you were talking about as far as like the things that you can see in the background, like Anytime that you look at, at Nicholson, like he is like in character and focused and hating his family. <laughs> like, <Yeah. laughs> it, is, it was pretty, pretty awesome and, uh, and disturbing. And uh, uh, yeah, that was an uh, awesome performance. Wasn't it around here
0: that the Donner party got snowbound?
1: I think that was farther west in the Sierras. What was the Donner party?
0: They were a party of settlers in covered wagon times. They got snowbound one winter in the mountains. They had to resort to cannibalism in order to stay alive. You mean they ate each other up? Huh?
1: They had to, in order to survive.
0: Yeah. Don't worry, Mom. I know all about cannibalism. I saw it on TV. See? It's
1: okay. Saw it on the television.
0: I guess, man, there's, there's no way for me to get around it, but I, that for me, in so many ways, Dr. Sleep informed The Shining for me. Uh, hmm. The scene where Danny confronts, you know, where Danny, as an adult, confronts the ghost of his father, and they're having a conversation, and, you know, and they both have great, great lines in that scene. Uh, of course, uh, Danny gets that line where he's like, and, you know, he's a recovering alcoholic. He's, you know, he was uh you know homeless and violent and drunk for most of his life trying to escape his shine so you know he's been sober for eight years at this point and he's got that saying where he says a man takes a drink the drink takes a drink the drink takes a man and uh but then of course jack torrance's aunt, like the thing when he when you hear his contempt for his family in that scene it it informs so much of the movie the shining for me i was like uh it makes a lot more sense <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> like, He's like you know he's just talking about like you know there's so many mouths to feed you know and you're like you're a hardworking man you're trying to do all this and uh and the only medicine is alcohol because your mind is a blackboard and the whiskey is the eraser
1: yeah there were some brutal lines in that and then of course they dealt directly with uh, aa and they brought lines from you know the whole aa's like script back into it at sometimes very strange and unsettling moments and Um, And then you get lines like that, which I I think was like, um, I I had recognized, I think it's like an old Irish saying or something. But, um, but yeah, like, it was a very interesting uh, look uh, at that scene and their relationship. Um, And and Dr. Sleep did a pretty great job in those more intimate moments, uh, in a way. Um, it, and and I I liked that they brought the alcoholism back up to the forefront uh, in in kind of an interesting way and and you know gave you a character that was actually you were rooting for <laughs> uh, in in a way the which was kind of lacking in The Shining like you really couldn't like uh, you know Jack Torrance in that film like there he didn't really have that redemptive edge at all. And one of the things that was so cool about Dr. Sleep, as you brought up, was the, the villains, you know, were actual people, you know, they, they had their whole own like personality that had a layer of complexity to it that wasn't just like psychopathic, you know, like they were doing crazy, awful stuff, you know, murdering kids in really brutal ways and stuff like that. But you still understood them to be a person, whereas, you know, Jack Nicholson is more like uh, like a psychotic force of nature almost
0: yeah, yeah he's like a he's an archetypal abusive mm. alcoholic parent that's like yeah he's uh he's almost like yeah he's almost a symbol of a man like and that's right Cooper's
1: he has such style. a layered performance but the character doesn't have very many layers which is kind of an interesting contradiction almost
0: one other thing that I, like I, I would i'll try to leave the book out of it further like going further but there is an interesting fact, and I think this was uh, Mike Flanagan's choice to try to stay, to keep the the the, the Kubrick fans happy, uh, and not go fully Stephen King on it. Because Jack Torrance is actually supposed to get another uh, arc redemption in Doctor Sleep, which uh, Mike Flanagan decides to leave out uh, oh, really? because yeah, he's supposed to actually help Danny rather than oh. just confront him and try to to harm him again. He yeah. actually there's like still a glimmer of the man he once was. And he actually tries to help Danny fight against the, the hotel. But uh, I think actually, I think it was wise just keep uh Kubrick's the shining as, as Canon and that Jack Torrance as who he is like, otherwise it would be confusing. I think.
1: Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. I actually didn't know that that was part of the books, um, but I think it worked well uh, this way. Um, and then it, it all gets complicated, especially when you're trying to not only weave everything together, but keep that canon, you know, because like in the because the Overlook Hotel um, was didn't blow up, which happened in the books. So then you have it sitting derelict for like thirty years, but um, now in uh, Doctor Sleep, you they're able to like turn on the boiler and the and the lights, and like there's like electricity and stuff for this derelict uh, hotel that's been just sitting unoccupied for like thirty years. So, I mean, sometimes you get holes that come about from uh, having to work those uh, disparate elements quite so much, but I think he did a pretty good job of navigating a number of them.
0: I mean, cause you gotta think like, not only was he, I think I'd said this before, but you know, he had to stay true to the source material of Dr. Sleep that he was creating. He had to stay true to a Stanley Kubrick film that was primarily like what most people think of as canon for the story and then stay true to the source material of a book that Stanley Kubrick completely diverged from when he made his original film. And he held it all together. That's why, I mean, this these are some of the things that like some people might watch it and go like, yeah, but it, it doesn't have, you know, but Stanley Kubrick didn't make it. I feel like almost as entirely the argument, <laughs> uh, but let's, I guess let's, let's get back into the shining as uh get, get through the, get through the overview a little bit. Cause I feel like I've, basically been overviewing the, uh, Dr. Sleep and I meant to be <laughs> chronological and I certainly didn't do that. But I don't know if you noticed this. Uh, I thought this was an extremely important part for the Jack Torrance character. And that's that uh, he's supposed to be the caretaker of the Overlook Hotel. Uh, but in any scene, you know, you either see him like trying to write or supposedly writing. Never, ever is he working. And if you notice that there's so many scenes where Wendy is like, she's in the boiler room, checking the boiler. She's
1: got her overalls it. on. <laughs> <laughs> she's
0: got, she's got uh, coveralls on. She's like, she's working constantly. She's the only one that does any work. So I don't know if you uh, caught that. Like
1: yeah. that No, I, I thought that that was very interesting. And, um, uh, Went with his character quite a bit, and 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 really kind of added some uh, likability to Wendy, who kind of went in and out as a likable character. I think that that element uh, really served her character quite well, as far as making her likable and um, and you know as a foil to uh, to Jack. Uh, so and which is interesting too, as far as being, as far as we were talking about with the misogyny and and all of that later, like um, those things get super complex, but I I liked that, you know, that was like one of her main elements as far as being a strong female character. Like she, she did a pretty good job uh, of like keeping everything together while he was completely falling apart. So that was probably my, my one positive take on the presentation of women from that movie, (laughs) but (laughs) Yeah, it uh, it was interesting,
0: and I suppose I mean the the terror like the terror of that movie or the horror of that movie or what it's supposed to be, I guess from the the different viewpoints is you know Wendy's viewpoint is uh, slowly realizing that your husband is insane and has contempt for you and wants to kill you and wants to kill your both your child, yeah. uh, then you have to think that, and I, I know that Stanley Kubrick didn't super uh, you know he had showed very little sympathy for uh jack torrance and kind of showed him more of you know more as an evil man primed to be this person but still there's that horror from his perspective which would be slowly realizing that you hate your family and that you think that they are a burden on you and that they're the reason you're not happy and that you want to kill them
1: (laughs) right And, and he seems to be wrecked with guilt at certain points like when he wakes up from that dream and it's like I dreamed that I killed you, which also like was as far as like story driven elements go, like the ways that um, Kubrick uh, prefaced that violence and like uh, reinforced it all the way back to the beginning with the mentions of, you know, the past events with um, somebody who had the direct experience of killing his family. And then, you know, you had the Donner party and then you have like his dream about killing his family. So you get this, this reinforced rhythm going forward leading up to his actual attempts to go out and kill his whole family, um, which was really great. Like there are a lot of things that are from a structural like standpoint of, you know, story writing that worked really well um, in The Shining. But, um, but yeah, we get that one moment where, you know, he comes out from that dream and is like, super distressed and and distraught about having you know precipitated this violence on his family so if you were ma- imagining it from the various characters perspective like there is definitely a horror line for him in terms of realizing that this is happening and who he's becoming and being unable to stop it um that's kind of an interesting way to to dive into it um, but yeah I really
0: like and that was a thing i learned recently about this is a a tool that stanley kubrick uses in a lot of his films which is uh i guess you know it's probably been used a lot since then because he's been copied so many times but it was more you know and and even now traditionally uh your film has a antagonist protagonist dynamic and it's kind of a dyad and in this particular one you've got uh jack versus danny danny versus the hotel the hotel versus jack jack versus the hotel and so throughout the entire movie, there are completely different dynamics of who the antagonist and who the protagonist is at any moment. Because because Dan- the hotel is trying to consume... The hotel wants to destroy Danny, but the hotel wants to destroy Jack. And Jack has to fight against the hotel, and Danny has to fight against the hotel, but Jack wants to destroy Danny, and Danny has to fight against Jack. It's like... so. Uh, in this in this particular rewatch, after I was looking out for that uh, that dynamic, I was like, that really does add such a huge layer to what otherwise, if you know, if, if we're very blunt about it, is an extremely simple plot. The plot is a man and his family, you know, a man, and a wife. He's supposed to be a caretaker. He goes insane. He wants to kill his family. The hotel is haunted he freezes to death they escape that's the whole story like (laughs) it's not a complex story but yeah when you add all these uh very interesting uh elements of like filmmaking and cinematography and everything else we said like all the things they do to try and like uh throw you off and make it uh off in unsettling then you come up with a a, you know like it is you know it's it is more of a piece of art I would, I would. right
1: yeah and and all those layers of conflict are what drive like interest in the story and they he does a great job of taking conflict out of like all of these different elements like everything is in conflict with everything else like all of the time super uncomfortable <laughs> but it's it's great for driving interest and it pulls you through the movie really uh it like just yanks you through you know like because you've got all these questions and all this conflict and it just like drags you forward by force once you once you get to that those first opening hooks, you're just like sucked into the rest of it.
0: before we get all the way further to the end when you know Jack has been fully completely possessed and and we uh, pass over into Doctor Sleep as the story continues, I do want to bring up uh, who just happens to be my favorite character and almost my favorite character in Doctor. Sleep as well, even though he's got a very small role in both films, and that's Dick Halloran. Uh, Dick Halloran is the head cook of the Overlook Hotel, he meets Danny and then starts telepathically speaking with him because he has the shine too. And this is how we learn what the shine is, is he gives Danny some ice cream while the rest of the family's off like seeing the hotel and has a conversation with him and tells him what the shining is. And this is also where we learn that the shining is possibly hereditary because uh, Dick explains how uh, he, his grandmother had the shining. He's like, You know, me and my grandmother used to have full conversations without ever saying a word because she had the shining. I had the shining. And that was the first time for me where I was because I had I had like suspected it. But then I that's when I became convinced that Jack Torrance also had the shining. But that he fell into the category that Dick Halloran described as people who have the shining, who don't know they have it or don't believe they have it.
1: Yeah. And then stray into the dark. (laughs)
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. He, he went on to the uh, the bad side of the whole Jedi, you know, arrangement, right?
0: So I guess uh, we'll just we'll just breeze through a little bit and get to the climax and stuff, but because uh, I mean, shit, half this movie is just long, long, long scenes with uh, very irritating sounds, <laughs> like in my <laughs> opinion, like like violins and choral sounds that are just very like piercing and just meant to make you unsettled and. Upset, and that's a lot of in the, in the in the title cards. They go like one month later, Tuesday, mm-hmm. Thursday, eight a.m., and then so and slowly become meaningless. Like time becomes meaningless in the film.
1: Yeah, w- which is a great mechanism anytime that you have a clock that's ticking down as far as uh, ramping tension and and building towards a climax. So you know, that that narrowing interval of time, you know, where it's like one month later, one week later, one day later, one hour later. Like you, you get this exponential progression that just slams you into the climax. Uh, so that that was an, a, a, a mechanic that I thought was pretty well used. And and you, like you said, like you, time is slowly compressing and starting to lose meaning as like the whole structure of reality starts to come apart.
0: And then I, I would say probably for me, like uh, one of the best scenes in in either movie is uh, it's the scene where you know uh, Danny's been attacked by one of the you know evil uh poltergeist of the hotel, which is Bathtub lady, which once again, I want to bring up in Doctor Sleep, Bathtub Lady is portrayed so much more scare, like more horrifyingly that she became scary to me in the shining for the first time before <laughs> I thought the shining uh, I thought bathtub lady was uh uh actually kind of like painfully boring to watch because it's like and it, just to set the scene oh. for anyone who's forgotten it uh. Danny says he's, he was attacked by a crazy woman in room 237. Jack goes to investigate. And then, of course, like a really like attractive naked woman comes out of the bathtub and makes out with him. But then he looks in the mirror and realizes she's actually like an old dead corpse. And then for the next three minutes, it's just like violins and cymbals and showing images of the of the like the lady's decaying body from and then like zoom in, zoom out, decaying body, zoom in, zoom out. Jack Nicholson is upset scared and it, it just goes and i was like end this fucking scene like, <laughs> there and that's that's i guess that's my biggest complaint about the shiny all in general is the pacing uh and the fact that they'll take a scene like that and just do it to death it's like that's you know in the way it would have been done in dr sleep you would have been like scary lady jump scared over
1: which is a much more modern approach and uh and, and lingering on that on those scenes you were talking about how like they just like keep beating that horse (laughs) after it is decaying and making out with you
0: and and like I said in my opinion that's uh that was not a great scene and it could I mean the thing is it could have been really well done if it had been edited down If, if Stanley Kubrick could have just been like hey I know this is a cool idea but it doesn't need to last this long like how about I just I show you that it's scary and then we fucking get away from it However, in his defense, the scene that directly prior to that is the scene where Jack goes to the bar. And another thing that I, I was looking out for in this, which I think is very interesting, is any scene, almost any scene with Jack in it, uh, once like things start start going awry, uh, it's a scene where he's somehow near a mirror and there's a light shining. like I guess signifying that he has the shine and that everything for him is a reflection. And uh, that's when he meets the the bartender
1: um yeah no the that is an, an interesting scene and the mirrors before we really get into that it, are really interesting and used like throughout as far as uh revealing uh reality and the distortions to reality and questioning you know which one is real right like and um like with red rum you know and and its reflection and then um you see jack through reflection um primarily a couple of times, like his entrance into various scenes, like the the one really creepy, weird one where Danny comes in and Jack's sitting on the bed. And and I believe you start out seeing Danny come in and you're just seeing Jack like in reflection. And then, you know, the camera like rotates through the mirror and, and you kind of pick the scene back up again. But but yeah, the the scene in the bar was really awesome. Like Jack ends up breaking the fourth wall and talking directly to the camera. Like it's one of the only straight on shots of in, in the movie where he's actually like literally looking at you, which yeah. is very unsettling and fits into the theme that you were talking about earlier with, you know, Hubert just kind of, you know, really lingering in these scenes because unlike the modern approach, you know, which is very much that jump scare move on, you know, like he wants you to sit with the discomfort in a way that's, well it's very uncomfortable and and it's not it's not really scary it's just really uncomfortable and you're you're trying to like you have to like sit with it which is has its own uses and stuff but but it's like very uncomfortable so yeah so if you wanted to get back into the uh into the bar scene um uh, where you know Jack Torrance is talking to I think it's Lloyd right yeah it's Lloyd um, Lloyd yeah
0: and Lloyd's a creep too man yeah <laughs> <laughs> I I think that some of uh some of Jack's best acting in the whole film is just him just talking to Lloyd about how like cuz he sits down and goes like I'd give anything for a drink I'd I'd give my goddamn soul for a drink and then immediately there's a bartender and mm-hmm. uh I don't know this is an interesting thing to notice that as soon as Jack uh takes the his first drink of whiskey he does his evil face which is the so it's a it's a face he does whenever he's like when he has the axe and he's trying to kill his family or whenever he's doing something evil he does the thing where his eyebrows go up and his uh, he creates an underbite like in his bottom teeth show and uh, it's just it's but he hasn't done that the entire film and he takes a sip of whiskey and immediately his evil face happens and I just think that's
1: right. Amazing. and he says he's willing to trade his soul for, for a drink and uh, and then you really get that uh, the sense that that transaction has taken place what would it be? I'm awfully glad you asked me that Lloyd
0: because I just happen to have two 20s and two 10s right here in my wallet I was afraid they were going to be there till next April so here's what you slip me a bottle of bourbon,
1: a little glass, and some ice. You can do that, can't you, Lloyd? You're not too busy, are you? <laughs> no, sir. I'm not busy
0: at all. And then, of course, immediately the, the party starts. He meets Grady, the former caretaker of the hotel, who murdered his family with an axe, successfully. And I, that's also more great acting. Another, another scene... Uh, where they're surrounded by mirrors and bright shining lights in the right. bathroom. And he says, uh, he's, I know you, you're Grady. You were the caretaker of the hotel. And Grady's of course, like, he's like, no, you're the caretaker of the hotel. You've always been the care- caretaker of the hotel. And I know that because I've always been here. It's just, <laughs> whoa, spooky.
1: <Yeah>. spooky. <laughs> I don't I, like having a weird i would not follow a weird bartender into a bathroom and then just like let him you know preen my my clothings like that oh, That would be so uncomfortable with that whole thing like um, yeah, cleaning him <laughs> yeah he's like literally like just meticulously like cleaning him and getting like closer and closer and like the whole thing is like super weird and they're the only people in this like really intense like lit red bathroom like the yeah. whole thing's very odd.
0: <laughs> well, there's also, I mean, I mean, if you want to bring it, like some of the, like, so, yeah, some of the very bizarre sexual uh, moments too. There's the first time that Wendy Torrance sees like where where we finally, and this is where I I believe where Stanley Kubrick finally is like, okay, I'm going to let Stephen King have it that supernatural things are happening. This isn't all in Jack's mind, and this is when Wendy finally starts to see the uh, the ghost too. Is she is running upstairs trying to find. Uh, danny and there's a furry there's like a man in a a bear costume giving head to like a man in a tuxedo like just right there in front of her and then they both sit up and stare at her (laughs) yeah
1: Yeah, super weird and then you you add that Uh, you know as a as a visual motif Danny has been placed with and associated with bears throughout like the entire thing like his you know when he's in his like bed like the pillow is an image of a bear and like um, yeah no that whole thing gets gets very weird (laughs) and then you can there like I, I watched some reviews and stuff online that were like dissecting some of the symbolism and stuff and, uh, and it's, uh, it's fairly prevalent <laughs> throughout the whole thing. There's, there's and also
0: there's a, I, I, you might've noticed this, or, or at least in like some of the, like some of the research people have done, there's a bearskin rug in front of the mm. fireplace that appears and disappears. So there's, mm. uh, it's only, it's only in certain scenes. And I think that they correlate to whatever might be going on. So if, uh, if Jack's in a certain type of mood, the bear is there. If Jack's in a different right. mood, the bear is gone.
1: right right which kind of relates to that overall thing of you know sexual predation and like the having that line be a potential valid interpretation while also having other conflicting lines which is where you know this whole thing becomes this unsettling and chaotic mess (laughs) which uh you know is is very concerning but yeah that that, that's that's a very gripping scene that I think has taken a uh, significant hold in cultural relevancy. Just the music from that, um, that one moment, like that, like that it will be in my brain for all of time. <laughs> it's just like locked in there now.
0: It's, and yeah, like to bring up to some of what you were just saying too, like where there's these themes and some are very, very subtle, it's like where you wouldn't notice them at all. If you watched the movie one time, you wouldn't even, first of all, you wouldn't notice the bear shit almost, almost certainly you wouldn't notice that, but there's the, the extremely blatant it's in your face this is an allegory for an abusive relationship uh wendy has an abusive husband she wants to get away from him and she can't she's in tra- like you know in this she is actually literally trapped literally in an trapped. isolated location that she can't leave but there's so many ways you could say this is an allegory and mm-hmm. or or even the, the part where she's able to when jack is coming for them and they're locked in the bathroom and she's able to get Danny out. She gets him through the window, but she can't fit herself. Also very allegorical for the way a lot of women feel like, I can't leave this. I can't leave him. I can't get away from him. But I can at least get my child away. Like, you know, I can get this child yeah. uh, maybe to graduate or get out of school. Just get away from this fucking guy and never have to come back. But she has to accept that she's there forever. So those roles, they're in sad. your face. They're not subtle. They're You know, like I say, it's an allegory. But it's almost like he's just, he's might as well just be giving you a TED talk.
1: yeah no definitely and and then like how you progress through those layers is really interesting and then at the you know and the different ways that the symbols like recombine to be looked at in like the like the baseline you know of the story conflict and plot and then you have like deeper you know potential allegory and then underneath that you have like They're like hazy, uncomfortable, you know, child abuse, like sexual abuse, kind of a thing. Because all like the main physical abuse, um, like storyline is above that and like very clearly visible. And then you have like potential, you know, child sexual abuse. And then um, like one of the deeper ways that uh, you can interpret a piece of fiction a lot of times is to because it's all coming out of one person's brain for the most part. You know, when you get into movies, sometimes it gets a little bit more diffuse because you have a whole bunch of people working on it. But especially with a novel, like. It's uh, frequently a person redigesting their own internal symbolic architecture um, and themselves and how they relate to their own childhood, their own you know masculinity and femininity and sexuality and all of those kind of things, which uh, Stephen King has a very interesting and distinct landscape on that you can feel like throughout his works. They almost all have like weird child sexual stuff that uh, paints a very vivid picture, like. And then when you move it into a movie and everything gets rehashed again, uh, you lose a lot of that sometimes, like with, um, uh, which is why some of his film adaptations are just like phenomenal, like Shawshank Redemption is one of my favorite movies. Um, But, uh, but yeah, so how you have these like tiered layers that go down as far as um, how deep the allegory goes and then how diffuse it becomes it, it is really very fascinating and uh i think they did a good job with that in this movie although like i said several times now i feel like it was a little bit too too uh too muddy too you know uh, non-specific and it might be because we are a modern audience but um you know like because expectations for media have changed so much over time and things have you know they've tightened a lot you know not only in the literal jump scare sense but just in general, as far as like what the audience is willing to uh, accept and look for. And so our interpretation, which is probably more nuanced uh, than a lot of what past audiences were looking for, kind of uh, those things start to break down a little bit more. So it could have been fine that that was all like muddy and underneath the surface. But yeah, for, for me, I'm like, I, I'd like a little bit more clarity than that. Like, like at least I could not, at least one step more towards uh, Dr. Sleep um maybe two would have made The Shining just like like it's already kind of a masterpiece but like beyond like it would have brought much more of a sense of fulfillment and 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 satisfaction from that whole experience.
0: I want to I want to jump off with what you just said about like uh, uh you know a lot of the the intentional muddiness of what Stanley Kubrick is doing but right now I'm it's time that we bring back my favorite character Dick Halloran now Dick Halloran, he's down in Miami. Like he doesn't have to be up in fucking Colorado because he only works there in the summer. And then, then he's like, he's got this cool bachelor pad where he sits and watches TV. And he's got like <laughs> hot uh, naked women paintings on the wall that are like really tacky in 1970s. And but he's just like a you know he's just a cool old man, you know. And but of course Danny, he's got a psychic connection to him now. Shines to him and he's like, we're in trouble. I need your help. And Dick Halloran, just a good dude. Uh, And this is what this is what begins what I which I think is probably one of the most interesting things that Stanley Kubrick does in the whole film, which is I think it's a, a series of events and shit that takes fucking 25 minutes or more of the movie of just boring, stupid shit that Dick is doing. Like he he calls the fire service. He goes, hi, this is Dick Halloran. Can you let me know the phones are down? Can you call them? And then the guy calls them and he calls and he calls back. They go to the trouble to have him call back. And he goes, nope, lines are still down. I can't get a hold of them there. And he goes, okay, I guess I'll go to the airport. He goes, he's on the the fucking airplane. They show a scene where he stops one of the flight attendants and he goes, excuse me, can you tell me what time we're going to land in Denver? And she's like, yes, 820. And then he looks at his watch and he's like, okay, it's eight (laughs) o'clock. And on and on and on. And he calls his friend and then his friend and tell, and then, I will say this best line in the movie is when he's trying to explain why he's going back to the hotel. And he kind of like, can't say cause I'm telepathic and he goes, well, I'm telling you, I have to go back to the hotel because those people we hired turned out to be a bunch of irresponsible assholes. And this friend <laughs> just takes that at face value. And he's like, Oh, okay.
1: Larry, just between you and me, we got a very serious problem with the people who are taking care of the place. They turned out to be completely unreliable assholes.
0: And gives him the snowcat. and then Dick Halloran <laughs> drives through the snow and this takes, you know, 10 more minutes. And then there's like five more minutes of him walking around the hotel. And so with all this shit gearing you up, you're like Halloran is there. He's a heroic figure in any other film. He would be a heroic figure. He would be going in here to save the day. And the fucking second he runs into Jack Torrance, he hits him in the heart with an ax and kills him instantly. And that's it. It's he's out of the movie. <laughs>
1: Yeah. 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 That was working against like all of the common tropes and your conceptions going into it, including, you know, for people who had read the novel and everything like uh, Kubrick was like, no, I'm just going to kill him in one ax (laughs) swing, like right there at the beginning of his entrance into the hotel. And he's dead now. You have no hope of escaping. Like, you know, you guys are just totally SOL.
0: And then, of course, there's the the, uh, the highest climax of the film is the chase scene through the uh, the shrubbed, whatever it's called, the, the hedge maze. Uh, Danny cleverly retraces his own steps and then is able to hide some snow and hide himself in the bushes. Jack freezes to death. Wendy and Danny escape in the snowcat. And that's when we begin Dr. Sleep. <laughs>
1: Yeah, after pushing in on the uh, photo that shows Jack in the 1920s, which was a very <laughs> ambiguous way to end The Shining. <laughs>
0: I've I forgot actually that's such an important part and we can't we can't actually skip that because that's part of Dr. Sleep too. Uh after Jack just freezes to death and dies, the final scene of the movie is a close-up shot of a photograph from 1921 at a 4th of July party and there is Jack Torrance right there just plain as day, that's him, so and there's a million theories uh, that when you die in the hotel, the hotel takes your soul and you become part of the hotel uh, that that Jack was always part of the hotel. there's so many theories. And we could do two hours of fucking podcast on that week, but <laughs> 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 moving into yeah, I,
1: I, I, I like the the hotel ate him personally, as opposed to you know uh, anyway that, that's my favorite one. he, he died there, it, it consumed him, put him into the cast.
0: Yeah, that's what I believe. I believe that the hotel had eaten his shine and therefore had taken him as well. And that's why he's part of the hotel. And that's why he's now a bartender there when Danny returns 30 years later. But this isn't 30 years later. This is just like a month or two. Uh, Danny is obviously severely traumatized. Wendy and Danny have moved to Florida. We're in doctor sleep and it's getting fucking awesome. Bathtub lady is for real scary now. She's not fucking a three-minute violin cymbals and chimes and shit. It's actually like a scary thing. But guess what? Dick Halloran came back because The Shining, those kind of connections, even though he has passed on into another dimension, he can still come back and talk to Danny. And he teaches Danny how to create boxes in his mind because all of the evil spirits from the hotel are tracking Danny and they want him. Dick Halloran teaches him how to put him in boxes and uh, You gotta hear this World's a hungry place And the darkest things are the hungriest And they'll eat what shines Swarm it like mosquitoes Or leeches Can't do nothing about that What you can do Is turn what they come for Against them I, That's a great scene in the movies When Danny, because he used to like He like pees himself all the time because he can't go to the bathroom because she's in there, and then finally he gets up one day because he knows how to make a box. He goes in the bathroom, shuts the door with her in it, and instead of him screaming, you you hear her screaming.
1: Beautiful cinematography, beautiful (laughs) work, which is awesome. And he's taking his power back, and you know those are all great things. But also, still very weird symbol symbolism to have a child go into the bathroom with a naked aggressive predatory adult figure <laughs> yeah. right like so we're, we're continuing some of the basic symbolic architecture uh, from the original into this this new one although technically that it's in most Stephen King stuff but um, but yeah so it, which is interesting and you know the that scene comes up in a really nice um, uh, reflection uh, later because there's a lot of symmetry to to this particular movie or he does a, a lot to put the symmetry in so. So, yeah so we're we're started into this doctor sleep I,
0: mean, I think we, I think we can skip ahead a little bit too because like I mean they do that in the beginning just to show that uh Danny is able to yeah learn the power to like to box away these uh evil spirits, but he is still an extremely damaged person, and he ends up spending most of his adult life uh completely blackout drunk and you know the first scene we see of him as an adult he's in a bar and he takes a uh, uh like a cue ball off the fucking pool table and beats a man like almost to death or possibly to death. They actually they say that, that he might have died and he might have gotten he would have been able to get away because he was just a drifter. Maybe he did kill the guy and nobody just ever found him for it.
1: <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. He was making some questionable choices there or whatever. Stealing money from uh the partner of the cue ball guy that he you know may have beaten to death who they he wakes up like naked in bed with that dude's girl and then she has a small child and then he steals her money and then like leaves. So I think they did a pretty good job of showing him uh, hitting that rock bottom for alcoholism where, you know, then he moves to the, the new town and, yeah. um, and is actually looking for a measure of redemption and meets his new best friend and um, starts AA and, and gets to actually like start progressing with, you know, building himself an actual life.
0: And I think that's great, too, that they show that, you know, Danny, like he has traces of Jack Torrance in him. He does have an evil dark side. And there's that you know, like what you said, there's the scene he wakes up with the woman uh, at this point. He doesn't know she has a small child, but yeah. he goes to st- to start stealing money from her wallet and finds out she has a toddler, which all he does is he picks up the- and she's passed out in the bed in vomit. Looks like she could already be dead. He puts yeah. the baby on the bed and gives the baby a bag of Cheez-Its. <laughs> and then fucking leaves and doesn't yeah. call the police or fire department or any, you know doesn't do anything and then later on in the film which I think is to me was the most disturbing scene in the film is when he wakes up and their uh, spirits have found him and it's the baby and it's her and they're dead and they keep and they're like they haven't found us yet and it seems hmm. like it's probably been like two weeks very haunting
1: <laughs> I I actually didn't think about them being that being the same couple like I that's that's awful. <laughs> I hadn't actually thought about that. Wow. Yeah, the,
0: the child and the woman that he just left alone. Right. Like, just died. <laughs> just, of course they died. I mean,
1: I, I mean, yeah. uh,
0: was that baby get a, The baby can't open doors. Right. Like, so, so, and I mean, it, and like you said, if that, if that man that he had beaten in the, in the uh, bar, if that had been the boyfriend, he certainly yeah. wouldn't be coming back Not around. Coming again. Back. If he was even still alive, he could be dead as well. Or at least. Yeah you know severely injured in a hospital somewhere so yeah. that was i think i think that was i mean aside from aside from the baseball boy uh death Oof. scene that yeah. had to be the darkest most troubling scene in the movie for me personally yeah but uh, just what you're saying though i mean we when you're talking about Ste- you know Stephen King in general but then the shining and doctor sleep in particular you have uh predators that kill children and in this particular case <laughs> because the true knots which i guess we should really introduce them better uh led by um rose the hat performed by rebecca ferguson amazingly so well and then her uh co-buddy is uh crow daddy and uh they uh they show the scene where they recruit a new member because she's a pusher and her power is that she uh she, basically it's a Jedi mind trick is her power. She can tell you to do something and then you do it. What's her name? Andy Snake Rattles- like, S- Snakebite Andy.
1: Yeah, Snakebite Andy.
0: Snakebite Andy and then the old, the very old, very tall man is Grandpa Flick. He's the oldest of the True Knots. We're led to believe he's been around since ancient Rome because yeah. the, the energy vampire of of their, their lifestyle keeps you alive forever. So the True Knots are the they're the
1: true villains of this. He's uh, so he's moved to a new town, um, you have the True knots uh, who you've you know just done a great job of introducing and are super weird and creepy and interesting um, and uh, and then he meets his new friend and then we're like uh, setting up the new actual conflict uh, conflict, which partly comes from meeting Abra and like going into that whole thing
0: and yeah that's uh, his connection to Abra is very much like the way he became friends with deKran is they have a psychic connection, except so it's just in this particular instance, Abra is the most powerful, I don't know what I say, should I say shiner? She's the most powerful uh, person with shine maybe ever. She's like a, she's like uh, Jean Grey or some shit, you know? But I wanted to go back to the True Knots for just a moment because we, do- we were talking about like the theme, the thematic uh, element of child abuse that goes into this. And it's that for one thing, the true knots don't just find like, so they survive off of finding people with shine. They're not vampires. They don't just, they can't suck anyone's blood. They have like, they have to find someone with shine. The the person has to be at least slightly powerful. The shine has to be powerful within them for, for it to be nourishing. And in order to make the shine pure, the person needs to die in fear and agony. And because of, for whatever reason it's the easiest thing for them to do is to hunt children with shine as opposed to any other aged person so there's not any adults being hunted it's always children with this group
1: (laughs) right which is like super weird and creepy um the and they do a great job with those particular scenes um like uh with the baseball boy i don't know if you want to establish anything else before we get into that but the, no,
0: we should go right into baseball boy just okay, I think that'll, okay, yeah
1: so that sets off so the that, true knots. <laughs> right so so that's probably that's definitely my favorite scene in the movie probably it's like one of the strongest scenes as far as just like um the emotional impact uh, for me and you know so you have this like long buildup that actually lasts for quite a while um setting up characters and everything and getting you into the world introducing everybody and then they just slam you into this scene where the uh the true knots find this. Um, uh, hunt down this young boy like hone in on his shine and he's this you know little baseball uh, boy who's you know young i don't know if he's like 10 or whatever and then they kidnap him you know classic van kidnap where the uh, emotion pusher who's basically jedi minding everybody is like yeah get in the van and he's like okay i'll get in the van yeah and then they pinion him to the ground like literally like tie him to the ground like spread spread eagle and then Rose starts um literally torturing him like stabbing her her knife into him and then is is on top of him and rocking in like a quasi sexual kind of a, a a scene like shot up from his perspective as if you know well she's like rocking and everybody's kind of quasi organic uh, orgasmically consuming his uh his essence his shine and uh, and he's like screaming and she's like purifying him by pain and like all talking about how like the shine from children is so much better than you know uh than anything else it's like pure and and everything in to the point where later in the movie um when she's talking about danny she's actually like yeah you're you know your shine is actually really good um despite um your age despite you not you know being a child which as she's making the same kind of like weird, like sexual, like writhing, you know, like stabbing, torturing thing where she's got her thumb leg and stuff. But but yeah, so, I mean, you couldn't, that couldn't be more of a line about sexual predation of, of, you know, children than pedophilia. Like the idea that she's uh, surprised that this like orgasmic consumption is good, even though he's an adult, like I was just like, oh my god, no. <laughs> <laughs> dude, <laughs> this is intense. But but yeah, but that that baseball voice scene was like, it, it hit so hard after all of that introduction and how visceral it is. And most of the time, like even if you have like a child getting killed, like you don't usually have a child being tortured and and then all of the like weird layers on top of that. So it, that was the point for me where I really like sat up and and took notice of this movie and as being like you know, having, it had something to say. <laughs> yeah. And that was a very impactful scene and disturbing, but, but also good.
0: And, and, and uh, I guess like, it's good too. Cause we, I feel like, uh, and we call him baseball boy because Abra calls him baseball boy and, and Abra is the secondary. It's a, it's another one of those, like, it's, it's another thing that's kind of similar to uh, the shining where in the shining uh, who's the antagonist or who's the protagonist and in, in this, it's kind of Danny, it's kind of Abra, it's kind of the True Knots. And then eventually it's kind of the hotel again. So it's there's so many moving parts in here. But uh, he's called Baseball Boy because Abra when he's when Baseball Boy is killed and he has that shine, it alerts her to the fact that it happened. And it's so traumatizing that she screams it and the way she communicates with Danny is on a chalkboard wall that he has in, in, his, in, his, in his little room. And the wall explodes with the word murder. And then she just writes baseball boy because he was, you know, he had his baseball uniform on. And that's the beginning of the second act.
1: You're wondering why I'm wearing such a funny hat. <laughs> I always wear this hat. So much it's a part of my name now. My friends, my very, very best friends, they just call me
0: Rose the Hat. It looks like a magician's hat. It is. It's a magic hat.
1: So such an intense, like, you know, first act climax, right? Like that was, it was super well done. And that scene where, um, because they're communicating, uh, Abra and Danny um, are communicating through a chalkboard. And like you were saying, and then it the chalkboard, which is their method of communication, just blows up and you get, you know, murder, but spelled um in the strange uh, way that Danny did on the wall, you know, where he wrote red rum and some of the letters were reversed. Yeah. And so it just it says murder, and then he sees it through a mirror and then it becomes the reflection of the nonsense word that he had written on the wall before, which kind of like jog, like throws him right back into the uh, you know, that it kind of like grounds him and his uh, emotional connection to what's happening, right? Like, cause it pushes him all the way back to his whole traumatic experience as a, as a child with red rum, you know, which he had like made up. And so that, that whole scene, which, it, you know, like you said, I think that's the first act climax. It just hits so hard. Like that was definitely, that was probably my favorite part about yeah, and, in Dr. Sleep.
0: And I don't know if this is the intention. I don't know if this is what Mike Flanagan was trying to do, but historically, classically, the scene where Jack Nicholson slams the axe through the door, and then you see Shelley Duvall scream in like pure terror. I felt like maybe Mike Flanagan was trying to like see if he could top that, or <laughs> or at least match it by saying like, "Well, how? What if? uh What if I showed the most horrific child murder ever on, <laughs> and it's not even off screen or described to you later? It's just shown in full detail." So. <laughs> I don't know if that was Mike Flanagan's goal or maybe it's that he just uh, he was just staying very true to the book. But this is what I think for me kicked off the series of scenes that uh, for me was the the most enjoyable, coolest part of the movie. And this is where we start to explore their psychic abilities and astral projection and what I think is some of the best cinematography. Some of those beautiful shots Uh, because Abra becomes aware of Rose the Hat. And she shows up and sees her, and then Rose sees her back. Rose starts to hunt her because Abra has the most shine in the world. And they live in a world where magic is, it's almost like they're saying, we live in a world where magic is waning. We're becoming more of a
1: fading.
0: Yeah. yeah we're becoming, becoming more of a, a world of technology and less of a world of magic. And so there's less for these people to eat. And so what they need is they need, they call her a whale. They need the most, the, the most shine they can possibly get from, the, from a single hunt. And that's where they have the scenes. And this this actually goes to a, this is something that Stephen King brings up a lot, which is uh, mind palaces. Uh, it's in the movie Dreamcatcher, which I thought was incredible. That the one guy's magic power is that he can remember everything because he can go inside his own mind, and it's basically like a seventy-story library. And that's also what the inside of uh, Rose the Hat's mind is once Abra enters it.
1: Right. Which is actually a, um, a a real life technique for using memory is you create a memory palace where, you know, it's somewhere that, you know, and then you go, uh, when you're trying to remember something, you literally put it into position within your internal memory palace and, and then it sticks. And, and it's one of the techniques that people use for the crazy feats of memorization that they're able to do. Um, so I, him having a, you know, a dramatic and and slightly hyperbolized version of that, based on like a real world construct of how people manipulate and use their uh, their memory and their mind. I, I have always really enjoyed that particular um, uh, symbol and, and and use of world building because uh, the magic system that they explore. And I agree that this section, like you get, it's it's almost like two movies where you have like um, you have a, the Shining that kind of bookends this. Um, this really quite strong internal uh, narrative that they're, you know, going on this adventure where, you know, you have Abra and Rose that are having these like psychic battles, and you have all these really cool pieces of cinematography you, you were mentioning where, like, they're like changing spatial dimensions, where, you know, they're like, you know, pushing on a wall and it rotates the entire building, and then they like fall through it or the memory palaces and um it's uh it, it really kind of hits this stride that lasts for you know an hour or maybe an hour and a half in the middle of it that it, it's like a whole sub narrative that was really kind of fun and interesting and, and enjoyable
0: and I, I i would uh go ahead and bring that up as one of the reasons why i found it uh to be like a more fun movie a more enjoyable movie than the shining and it's and like to say that is for me not to sit here and say that uh that I don't think Stanley Kubrick was groundbreaking. And that don't that I don't think the the use of the steady cam was very cool and all that stuff. But the scenes like, for instance, the grocery store scene, Rose the Hat is grocery shopping. Abra is watching her through her own reflection in the in the uh, milk uh, cooler. And when Rose the Hat gets close enough, she realizes that she's not looking at her own reflection, she's looking at Abra. And Rose tries to reach out for her, and Abra makes the entire like series of glass coolers explode and shoots Rose on her ass like sliding across the entire grocery store, and it's just an you know and everyone in the grocery store is like what the fuck just happened? And then <laughs> I mean that scene's amazing. Uh, for me though, one of the scenes I thought was just absolutely incredible is because you know Rose the hat. What she does is she goes on top of her RV and meditates, and then she astral projects essentially, and she flies up you know above the earth, above the clouds. And flies all the way to, to the town that Abra lives in, you know, hundreds of miles away, and then floats down. And then uh, you know, like you said, they change the dimensions. A lot of it's kind of the like it reminds me of the movie Inception, that changing of physical possible realities. But yeah, she comes in through the window, she walks in, and she's, you know, she thinks she's being sneaky. She thinks she's gonna get Abra, and she reaches in to Abra's mind. And gets de-gloved, which is how I've heard it sp- spoken <laughs> to. And apparently Mike Flanagan has done that in several of those films. But that's where the person gets her hand stuck in something and has all the skin ripped off of it.
1: Yeah, like like I, I don't know if you're familiar with ring avulsion, where it's you know, somebody if you have a ring on and then the ring gets caught on something and gets yanked off, it can pull all of the skin and connective tissue off of that finger so that it just strips it down to basically a bare skeleton and and that's like that's like my one of my worst nightmares (laughs) and he did a good job of portraying that like where you're just stripping you know degloving is is a great word for it but yeah (laughs) well the
0: the thing is that's so fascinating about too is like you know because Abra is so powerful is that you know this is all happening in Rose's mind and it's all happening in Abra's mind but because of the fact that it's it's one of those things and like I think it kind of like, it's kind of like maybe takes some of the like, cues from things like, I don't know if you've heard of this, like some monks were able to like meditate to the point where they were able to like burn themselves without adding any kind of heat, they could just do it. And I think what they're trying to say with this is that being this deep in your mind for it feeling that real, the injury will be real too physically for you it's because when she returns to her actual, when you know when her mind returns to her body, her body is injured.
1: Yeah, which is a cool scene too, where like she slams back into her like astral body, slams into her, her physical body, and like blasts her off the top of the RV. Um, but that whole um, thing, that whole boundary between reality and um, these kind of internal um, metaphysical experiences is really interesting. I mean, you get it all the way back down to the matrix where, you know, they talk about the mind makes it real. And yeah, yeah. Um, and so so like this is like that, like jacked up a couple of levels where her hand is like literally stripped down from a filing cabinet that was in Abra's brain. And, you know, so yeah, they, they play with that in a really interesting and fun way,
0: you know, heading towards the third act. And I, I mean, because we can't stay on the true knots forever, even though they are fascinating and fun. But there's just I think it's one of the most satisfying scenes I've seen in a movie in years and there's, and it's a two part. So it's, it's a, it's a satisfying. And then, and then immediately just extremely uh, distressing to me. Distressing. Uh, and they do, and they combine it all at once, but uh, the true knots are hunting Abra. Then they now know where she is. And with the help of Danny at this point, uh, Danny is now like uh, Abra's parents know who Danny is. They know, they know that Abra's powers are real. And when they, they pull this amazing trick, and they're, they're driving Abra deep, deep into the woods. And they get her and they tell her to like sit on a picnic table and to sit there and meditate. And the True Knots finally arrive. And they're there and they're like, how easy could this possibly have been? We got here, we got her. And they realize the entire time Abra had been projecting her, the uh, like I guess her essence or whatever, Like they thought it was her. It was actually just a teddy bear that she had imbued with her spirit. And so they get there and they realize. and this is what's so great about it. You know, leading up to this, everything is supernatural. Everything is finding, you know, a ghosts are trying to get you. You put them into your mind box. Uh, a true not is trying to get into your mind. You have a psychic battle with them. In this particular scene, uh, Danny and his best friend from AA have just gone and gotten some, <laughs> hunt, some deer hunting rifles and posted up in sniper positions. And then instead of any psychic battle or any shit, they just opened fire with guns on the true knots and just start killing them after, you know, it, like, I love that. It's just suddenly, it's just, it's suddenly a scene of a bunch of unarmed, or I guess they they all have guns, but it's, it doesn't matter because <laughs> these are snipers and they're hidden and they just start getting sniped and, and they kill almost all of the true knots <laughs> and just an amazing scene. And so I, I was just cheering. I was so happy. They go yeah. down, but uh, what's her name? Fucking Andy, the, snakebite
1: snake andy who, who snakebite andy who we got introduced to in the very beginning where she was luring pedophiles into a cinema and then like carving into their face uh like a, a like a brand or whatever in order to like punish them and and giving her emotional push to like um try to make them you know uh you know basically revulsion towards trying to be with another you know child or whatever so she has this whole like you know again sexual abuse like weird you know thing about you know men and and that whole thing and then enter this part where she is the last one of the true knots that's alive uh, that you know we know about that's in this firefight or or whatnot and um and and then you can kind of go back to finishing off the, how this works well, out
0: <laughs> oh okay, yeah i mean so, yeah so like like you said andy doesn't begin; she does not start on in this film as a villain she starts out as just kind of like a little vigilante. On her own, but is adopted by the True Knots, and they convert her to becoming a True Knot. Which I don't fully understand how that process works. Probably got to yeah. read the book to understand that. But she's dying; she's about to die. You know, she's on her way out. And Billy, Billy is Danny's best friend at this point, point. and he's, he's the guy that got him an AA, got him sober, got him a place to live, got him off the streets. Did you know? Did everything for him. It's truly, really is maybe the only best friend he's ever had. And Danny's like, "Don't go near her," and but Billy's not listening. He walks over to her, and the last thing she says before she dies, she goes, "Kill yourself." And he can't control himself, and he ha- takes his uh, deer hunting rifle and shoots himself in the head and kill. And it's just, it's terrible because at this point, you've really grown in a detachment ability. You because re- especially everything he's done for Danny, and the fact that he took him at his word that this shit was real, and then he's dead. And then, unlike every other True Knot who died in agony and was screaming and was afraid to die. Snakebite Andy dies laughing. And is it's just, it's so disturbing. It's so terrible. <laughs>
1: Which is, and it's so abrupt and like the um, the director just like doesn't pull punches like in in a really interesting way and uh, and yeah that 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 hit really hard uh, emotionally like like you don't like I I instinctively had the yearning I was like you know he has to be saved Dan has to like save him he has to like interject himself use your psychic powers Dan like sh- shut his mind down shut her mind down do something no boom his he just blows his own brains out and then he's dead and uh yeah it was that that hit really hard too that was a a really intense scene
0: well let's take it into the third act so we can begin our rating process but we cannot skip very important uh scene of action that occurs before the final showdown with uh with um rose the hat because there are still true two true knots alive and one of them is Crow Daddy, who uh, we believe is like the second most powerful true not, he's her right hand man. And he is he was able to kidnap Abra and inject her with drugs to the point where she couldn't use her shine. But with the power of Danny and their psychic connection, Danny enters into uh, her mind and wakes up and starts talking to the guy. And the guy suddenly realizes he's not talking to a little girl. He's talking to like a 40 year old man. And. There's a just an amazing, you know, they're they're driving and you know they're in a van, they're going fast, and he's like, and there's a really cool uh, a a little trick of camera that I don't fully understand what it's called, but it's where you draw the uh, the viewer's eye to something without them knowing why their eye was drawn there. And uh, Crow Daddy is she's in the back seat and you know and she's all buckled in, and he's in the front seat and he has a pistol on his hip, and she keeps like and, and whenever Danny would say something, he'll keep. Like reaching down like he's gonna pull the gun out and shoot her and he's like i don't think you know i don't think rose the hat would be very happy if you shot me if after all this and killed me and you didn't get the shine and the guy was like oh, okay and he takes his hand away from the gun and then she's like you know i guess for you to you know to have lived this long you know to to have lived over a thousand years i guess no wonder you wouldn't think to put on your seatbelt." and he's like what and he like and it shows back that you know you had been seeing every time he reached for his gun you were looking at the fact that he didn't have a seatbelt on and she causes uh him to crash into a tree and he shoots out through the fucking uh windshield
1: <laughs> yeah that was another really intense moment and um uh, and interesting and and he was also an interesting character throughout this like they did a pretty good job of um of making you know fully fleshed humans out of uh, the the true nut. like he really Kind of get to know this guy and rose and they have their own dynamics and, and interest and so during this this car ride where um abra drugged and in the back seat and they're having this kind of conversation before danny comes in um uh, crow is talking about how um or it might have been after danny comes in but crow's talking about how um, both sides have lost a lot of people you know and rose is not going to be happy regardless because um everybody has died and and you can kind of feel that it's a a tragedy for them as a as a group like they have this really strong familial connection and bond even though they are antagonists and um which all comes together to create more emotional weight for these kind of like really visceral intense moments uh like him getting ejected out and then like dying and you see every time that a member of the true knots dies you see rose just being like so you know in agony like screaming like this is all these are all really meaningful deaths to her like she's not just like a mad woman that's running around murdering people without you know having some sort of humanity or agenda involved with it so it was really interesting and that it was another one that that hit pretty hard
0: and I did like too, like uh, in that little uh speech he's giving to Abra it shows that he's he he has kind of a nihilist kind of belief about everything you know of course, he believes that he should continue to eat children to live forever because he doesn't believe in good or evil. He doesn't think that shit. Ex- he doesn't. He thinks it doesn't matter. He thinks that everything is chaos and that it's like a cold, uncaring universe and that he is just lucky that he can continue to live the way he does. It's, he doesn't he doesn't see himself as evil. He doesn't see himself as good. And he doesn't apply those kind of uh, labels toward anyone. I mean, that's kind of a, I mean, I don't don't know if that's kind of like the way all the true knots think, but that's definitely the way uh, Crow thinks. Dr. Sleep is just full of so many great lines, so well delivered, great characters. And just like you said to fleshing out someone like Crow, who might as well just be a supporting character, but you get to, this is what's so different than in this movie than in The Shining, because in The Shining, what, what do you really have? Three characters, you know, ultimately, and then Dick Halloran a little bit. But in uh, Doctor. Sleep, there are so many characters because you've got Danny, you've got Billy, you've got all the true knots. You get to know you know you start to know all their names and what their motivations are. Abra, her family. We you know what her family's about. Like I mean, it's, it's so many people. And then the hotel and then you start to learn about not just the like who some of the the ghosts in the hotel, they they take on personalities that whereas before in, in the shining, they're just apparitions so uh shit man do you want to take us into the third the final you know third and final act the timberline hotel where you yourself have been in an ash rainstorm
1: (laughs) right yeah yeah no so we uh we transitioned back into um going up to timberline because um you know because rose is or to the overlook (laughs) because um you know rose has lost her entire group you know and she is both, you know, super pissed off, and you know, still needs to, uh, you know, eat right. So she's still chasing now, not only Abra but Danny, uh, because they both have like an incredible of shine. Although I, I don't think she really, really recognizes that about Danny yet. We, we kind of hit that, you know, going forward. But, um, but yeah, so she's ready to do anything to go get Abra and um, Danny, and she's strong, like she's super strong. And so the only way that Danny knows to you know, maybe effectively handicap her and bring the situation back under control is to go to the overlook um, where, which is supposed to be, you know, really corrosive and dangerous place for anybody that has an element of shine and can become uh, affected by the hotel and its, its, its desires. It's, uh, it's basically being like a huge true knot in terms of wanting to consume people's shine. I, and, I love, that, um, so I love we, that
0: element that they brought into it, that the, that the uh that the hotel and the true knots are the same thing essentially mm. I just I don't know I think that's just a a very very cool plot point you know that
1: yeah that, piece that, of the world building like you have the same kind of constructs on different scales and so the 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 hotel is is like this big personified version of the true knots uh, and presumably more powerful um, so all very cool so yeah so we we head up. We we get the same shot that opens *The Shining*, although now it's been rendered in super dark tones, and there's snow falling, and you know you're sweeping up the valley. And we head up into the actual hotel, uh, where you know the the end sequence is, is going to unfold.
0: Oh man, there's so many fucking good scenes in that too. But yeah, I love it. Uh, they get there, and uh, Danny's like, uh, you know, like hold, you know, wait out here. I have to go wake it up. And Mm -hmm. as as he walks through the hotel, all the lights come on wherever he walks. But a very important scene uh, is that the very first thing he does when he gets in there is he goes down to the boiler room and turns everything up to 11 so that it's uh, so that it's unstable. And this will all come in to play later. And I think it makes Stephen King probably very happy when he saw the movie, because that's Mm -hmm. actually how The Shining was supposed to end. Or it's how the book The Shining ends. Uh, uh, Rose the Hat arrives. She's very terrifying. She's there to get him. And that's when uh, I think Abra says, you don't know where you're standing. And she gets pulled down to the typewriter where Jack Nicholson had been typing all through The Shining and immediately is trapped in the hedge maze.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and then you have this whole like long sequence. She, of course, is uh, very strong and scary. And so she's able to work her way free of the hedge maze. I don't, I don't, think i'm missing anything particular there but um and then and then you get these really kind of fun and awesome shots of her uh exploring the overlook I, i think that i'm not sure if this happens after or before but but i distinctly remember her walking past the elevator and seeing that you know iconic scene of the the blood just like pouring down and you know so far every person that we've seen interact with that um like wendy and you know danny were like super freaked out you know had like this normal human reaction but instead rose just kind of smiles and it's like oh that's interesting and then just like keeps walking yeah. she, yeah, she, just, she
0: finds it amusing
1: yeah <laughs> she finds it amusing and um and so yeah so you get you get a lot of these kind of like fun fan servicey shots that bring back pieces of the shining um as you're moving towards this scene with her and the typewriter and then they try to confine her um and then she breaks out because she's strong oh they were trying to to lock her into uh, one of danny's boxes where yeah, they were she was, making at
0: she thought she yeah. was in abra's mind she was in danny's mind
1: right and and so you know abra was just there as bait and so danny's trying to like close a box around her but then she's like oh, i'm like way too strong for this and just like blows up the box and the whole illusion that they have and um and then we get uh, to replay um uh, one of the critical scenes from uh the shining where uh, now it's Rose um, you know, chasing uh, Danny back up the stairs uh as as he is trying to fend her off with an axe, uh like Wendy had done with um Jack uh using a baseball bat.
0: I think this is under dispute by some people. I think this is a cool as fuck scene and amazing and just a great and a great way to just finally take out Rose. And it seems like uh Danny won't be able to do it, but she she gets him in the leg, she uh, hits his ephemeral artery. He is going to die any minute. And she and he's full of shine. So this so she's becoming more and more powerful even now while Abra is trying to hide in this hotel that would also like to uh, eat her. So Abra's in even more peril than ever before, but at this moment the this is the whole reason that Danny had lured her to this hotel. He had no intention of surviving this encounter. He just wanted to have Rose the Hat be inside the hotel and she's looking at him and she's breathing in his shine and she goes, "Oh, I've noticed you have something special." And he's like, they're not special, they're starving. And he just opens up all of the boxes of every evil spirit he's ever trapped in his mind and lets them out. And then they take physical form in the hotel and consume Rose the Hat. Of course, Danny is then possessed by the hotel, goes to room 237, where it all began to kill uh, Abra. But she's powerful enough to wake him up just long enough to get him to go back down and fight the hotel's uh influence against him long enough for the fire to begin and boom the entire hotel goes up in flames there you have it danny becomes the decaloran to abra and the cycle moves forward
1: yeah which is a a pretty fun and uh interesting way to to go about it like he you know as far as like a a character and everything goes like he read readdresses and releases all of those, you know, ghosts that he's been holding inside of himself. And then all of it gets consumed in the fire. And like, there's some pretty strong symbolism in in all of that. Uh, and it, and like you said, it's the way that Stephen King originally ended The Shining book. And um, so I'm sure he was probably pretty pleased that we were making it all the way back around to uh, his original vision. And and with with him being a sympathetic character and being able to Stave off some of the possession, regain himself long enough to be of use to the people that he cares about, and then you know, kind of go out in his blaze of glory with all of the uh evil things that he's been holding in are now just burning around him.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, but uh, as I, I, it's my oh, and actually, I we totally forgot that there's there is a final scene that's very important. Those the evil spirits of the hotel they are they're not trapped in the hotel because the hotel is gone, they are free to now hunt Abra, but Abra is more powerful than even Danny ever was. So the final scene is the horrifying bathtub lady is in the <laughs> bathroom and Abra sees her and goes like, oh, and goes and walks in the bathroom and shuts the door. And as we must assume, then traps bathtub lady forever. So bathtub lady is a fucking idiot. think She's
1: kind of a one note horror, right? Like yeah. <laughs> all she knows how to do is be like peering around the bathtub curtain. And then she's like, I'm scary and my breasts are very sad. And then like, (laughs) that's, that's like all she can really do. But I mean, uh, don't
0: don't get me wrong. If I saw a bathtub lady in my bathtub, I would fucking not be able to pee in my bathroom either until, (laughs) until I could find a shine, shining friend, teach me how to make boxes. So, (laughs) all right, man, we're going to start the scoring process. This is going to be very difficult. And I think there might be some people out there that are going to send me some hate mail if things don't go their way. But we're going to start with plot, and if you would like, uh, we'll score. Uh, sh- uh, we'll do The Shining first, and it's going to be we're going to have to be pretty, pretty fucking tough on some of these things because it's a five star score. So we can't, you know, otherwise you're tempted to give everything a seven. You know what I mean? So let's. Yeah. So I, th- I think five is uh, a better way to do it because you got to be more realistic. Like, was it truly? five stars was it truly as great as it could possibly be or was, you know, so the plot of The Shining uh, fucking Jack Torrance gets a job he takes his family, they go to a hotel they get isolated, he gets cabin fever the hotel is haunted actually and he tries to kill his family but he dies what do you, what do you say, man?
1: Um, Yeah it's I would say personally, for me as a writer because of the intricacy involved with some of the Rhythm and repetition that I was talking about, where you know you're introducing story elements and then you know like you see them over and over again in order to create the effect. And some of that kind of crossplays with with plotting. Um, I'll give it a four because there were things that left me not satisfied with. Uh, like I said, I think some of it was a little bit more diffuse, and the plot architecture itself was very simple. Although you know, arguably it, it worked. So I wouldn't say perfect plot, but I still enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, I I got to say the thing is the fact that the plot is so simple is what gives the film its ability to be such a great film. I mean, Stanley mm-hmm. Kubrick could not have done so much of what he did if the plot was any more complicated. It couldn't be a more complex plot and still probably be such a good movie. But I do have to agree with you that that it's still we're grading this on plot, not on an overall how great was and you yeah. know like I said, I'm not I'm not grading this on how cool the steady cam shots were. I'm grading this on plot. So I'm gonna go with you on that. I'm gonna say that The Shining gets a four. It is a great plot, but it is not the perfect plot.
1: Right, uh, we we have other examples of things that were just like fantastically plotted, uh, so yeah.
0: All right, uh, now this one, uh, this is gonna be interesting because uh, uh, you, you can't say that either film didn't have great acting, but we are gonna to have to score on acting. So sadly, I think the best way to do it is to do an overall. And so, cause you know, and I'm not, I'm not trying to influence your decision at all, but I was going to say like, you can say, Hey, maybe that was one of the greatest performances of uh, Jack Nicholson's career. And, or you could say, maybe that wasn't one of the best performances of Ewan McGregor's career, but let's try and take everyone into account before we give him a score. And uh, do you want to go first again?
1: Sure. Um, so I, I, because of uh, Nicholson's iconic role and the, Absolute nuance and dedication that he showed, and um, you know, like you have to. I think everybody else did a good job too. But, but like like you were saying, with the background scenes where it's like he's not even really on camera, he's not like the focus. Like, but you can see his malevolence and his hatred for his family. Like, I I, I don't know. I'm gonna give it a five. Nicholson did like an amazing job uh, with this movie, and um, and I think everybody else did a great job too. There were like emotions everywhere. So. Yeah, shining gets a five for me. Oh man,
0: I'm so tempted to to say the same so like <laughs> cuz like you said, you know, Jack Nicholson of course he steals the show. Uh the the little boy that played Danny uh Danny uh, cuz his name is Danny, but I can't remember his last yeah. name right now, but uh great great child actor, show, you know, did a really good I'm terrified. Uh mm-hmm. so much so much fantastic acting. Obviously, obviously Shelley Duvall, uh just so much sympathy for her for having to be she seemed
1: legitimately terrified most of the time. <laughs>
0: well, the thing was, you know, Stanley Kubrick had made her, you know, she developed all kinds of health problems from that film because Stanley Kubrick had like fucked up her heart and she was losing her hair because they yeah. she was, because the entire cast and crew were instructed to treat her like shit for the entire duration of filming that movie. And for that reason, that's actually, that, that will be the reason that I'm going to take them down one point uh, down to a four no matter how great Jack Nicholson was and how, how great I think Shelley Duvall was the fact that it was. Uh, a lot of what happened was against her consent It's things that couldn't happen now, it's, you know, there should have been a union involved protecting her so we're going to take that down to a four from my opinion so. Uh, i'm going to i'm going to i'm just yeah i'm going to stop talking and leave it at four on acting. Okay. <laughs> All right, man action. Every, everyone's favorite category you want to you want to take it first again
1: sure the um yeah so uh it definitely it, it also has iconic action uh uh sequences in less in like the gunfight sense than the tension and terror like when uh, jack is hacking his way into the bathroom or whatever and um like that that has a incredible amount of emotional resonance and fear and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I'd say, you know, they did a good job in chasing, you know, Danny through the hedge mage and all that kind of stuff, all very interesting, intense and, and uh, action-y, but it also was pretty slow at times. And, uh, and there are other comparables that are, Uh, i would score higher in the action genre like john wick exists in the world like that like john wick is like a five for me on action like some of the stuff in that movie is insane but so yeah so i'm I'm gonna go with a four again
0: yeah uh i won't i won't uh disagree with you on that because i think yeah like we said we did give them some pretty and also like uh speaking of john wick it's just not fair to compare a modern film to a to a old film you know what how how old is this This is movies like over 40 years old so it's just not it's not fair to to compare anything keanu reeves has done to it no but (laughs) no but i do agree that i I think there are plenty of uh films that are contemporary to this film that did have better action so
1: right and and are we are we rating it in its time or in general you know because
0: yeah context Uh,
1: becomes a part of that
0: fuck I I didn't really think about that beforehand what, what would you we could do, do either what would
1: you prefer Uh, probably just generally for me like how because part of the legacy of a movie like this is how well it stands up to time yeah. and so you know you're getting you're getting a modern rating of uh, this movie which isn't to me doesn't mean that uh, we shouldn't incorporate and take into account some of its um, its legacy and, and pioneering and all of that but but yeah, for me, I, I think considering the context and everything else is, is part of it. Yeah, and
0: I, I think, uh, uh, and I, but I will take into consideration like some of the challenges they had because they didn't have CG. Sure. And yeah. for instance, the elevator uh, full of blood that took fucking something like nine days to shoot. And they only it took three shots. or wow. took nine days to do it because every time they did a shot, it would take a crew of people three days to clean it so they could shoot wow. it again because they were really doing that in a real fucking hallway with a real you know door so yeah. I, I take into consideration how much difficulty went into it i still would not give them higher than a four on action okay. so cool um, dr sleep though
1: true true um yeah so uh, again and unless I, I i could give dr sleep a, a it did a good job with action. There were some very tense action scenes, and you got some gunplay and all of the modern elements. It's much faster. Um, still not John Wick for me personally, but oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I would have to be underneath perfection uh, at at a four. And unless we're able to give half points, I might I might bump it. But
0: well, I guess uh, one other thing I would bring to it because you know neither one of these films are in the genre of John Wick, which is you know true action, uh, true action, but. I have to bring out and and like I said, it's also it's not necessarily fair to the shining because they didn't have cG but uh, when Rose the Hat uh gets trapped in Abra's mind and gets degloved uh when Rose the Hat is in the supermarket and she tries to reach out and touch Abra in the uh, reflection and the cooler, and the cooler explodes and shoots her across the uh, fucking thing when the uh when Danny and Billy uh lay a sniper trap for the true knots <laughs> and they and they shoot all those true knots uh i could go on man uh when when all the spirits of the overlook hotel finally kill rose the hat i'm gonna have to give it a five on action
1: there you go that <laughs> that'll right. work too
0: uh final category is wow factor well, i guess let's go ahead and start with the shining and uh whatever you have to say man
1: yeah, well, I think that it has a incredible amount of wow, and uh, it's it was a tremendously uncomfortable experience. Both because I just rewatched it a couple of days ago, uh, and doubly so when I watched it when I was a youth. <laughs> like it was just like it is a overwhelming, you know, experience that is incredibly uncomfortable and contains and and this is kind of the category that you can shove some of the extra stuff in there. That was really awesome. Like, um, like some of that rhythm and the uh, just fantastic score. Uh, I mean, you mentioned it being very uh, uncomfortable sounds a lot of the time too, but like the, the atmosphere that they presented and some of the really like intricate details, like using the uh, false architecture for the building where, you know, even with like, Juxtaposed scenes that look like they're continuous, like with Dandy transitioning between two hallways that are on different floors of the room, and the layers of symbolism with, you know, the the maze and you know the different ways with the death and reincarnation and the cycles of the um, various you know caret- caretakers and um, just all of that put together. Uh, I will probably give it a five on the wow factor. It hits emotionally really hard in in ways that are not necessarily positive but uh, like for me on wow factor a one would be something that i like walked away with and never thought of again because it just like wasn't interesting and and this is this is a movie that like gets into your brain and then just stays there literally forever
0: yeah i'm gonna uh i'm gonna totally agree with you on this one uh i mean this is this is what i mean this is why the shining to this day is still getting spoken about it's why we're talking about it it's got a five on wow factor i mean the simpsons the, probably the, be, the best treehouse of horror they ever made was the shinning with uh where uh no no beer no tv makes Homer go crazy so mm. fuck yeah five on wow factor I believe that puts us at, slightly at odds on our final scores man I think that I uh you scored uh actually let me just tally it up. And just we'll do the exact thing I think we're like I think we're two points off I think we both think gave so. a lot of four am I right yeah uh so four four and then you gave acting a five I gave acting a four so yeah. you were at, so we're both, I'm at eight. You're at nine. Nine.
1: We're just doing the Shining right now, right? Okay. I don't know. I don't, I, I, uh, no, I think we did one from um, Dr. Sleep, but we need to go back and do the other ones from it. Yeah. So yeah, so just, just <laughs> the Shining right now. I should
0: have written this down. Well, I mean, I was keeping track. What it is is we're, we're two points separate because I scored acting in Dr. Sleep higher than the Shining. You scored right. uh, acting in The Shining higher than Dr. Sleep, and I scored action in
1: Dr. Dr. Sleep, Sleep
0: higher, and you scored I action score. in Dr. Sleep-
1: One point lower. One point
0: lower. So uh, grand total <laughs> is I think you came away with uh, The Shining wins, I came away with uh, Dr. Sleep wins, which doesn't totally that surprise sounds-
1: me. No, that sounds exactly like I would have expected this to go. <laughs>
0: but, but we were extremely close at the end. I mean, we're yeah. just by and just only on the on the couple of things we we differed on by one point.
1: Yeah.
0: And yeah, I think all in all, we came we came away two points different on our total belief system here. Uh, I'd like to go ahead and score and say, in order to make this, you know, just for a takeaway for everyone that's been listening, I believe that the best thing to do is to watch The Shining and Dr. Sleep as one long five-hour movie. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, and, and expect to be uncomfortable. <laughs> but but that also, like, you end less uncomfortable because you get some of the resolution that comes with, you know, Dr. Sleep. So, you know, it doesn't leave you, like, emotionally disturbed for a significant amount of time. Like, if you just and at the end of The Shining, so having them, you know, go together probably is a good idea.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's good. yeah, what we talked about earlier is yeah, you know, the the Shining is the trauma, and Doctor Sleep is the healing, and so Doctor Sleep is you know it's a it's a little bit more feel good, you know, right. But a lot, of, uh, but there's a plenty of feel bad in that movie too.
1: <laughs> there, there is plenty of both, and uh, and it's kind of sad for people who didn't have the option of watching them back to back, and you just have like. You know, 30 years of trauma from having watched Shining and then <laughs> waiting for Dr. Sleep to come out and heal you a little bit. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was fun. Uh, there was one uh, amusing thing that I thought was funny that I hadn't, didn't think about while we were actually like going through everything. But um, so you have uh, the True Knot, which is, um, you know, these people who are basically vampires for uh, the steam, which is like the, you know, magic power for you know people that are gifted with the the shine and um so anyway so you have uh, they're, they're like consuming steam so it's it's very steamy and uh, and everybody's shining and and they're vampires so it's kind of a spiritual successor to twilight which had sparkly <laughs> vampires
0: <laughs> i refuse to agree with you, man but i don't know man let's hit up uh, you know, I recently became uh, a more of a fan of Kristen Stewart. I didn't use because I hated those movies. But she made a movie called Underwater where she basically fights Cthulhu. And fucking, I know that's not what we were talking about today, but shout out that movie if anybody wants to watch it. If you if you weren't a Kristen Stewart fan, it, it might make you into one. <laughs> <laughs> Brandon, thank you so much for co-hosting my reviews of my own, man. And uh, have a fucking awesome day, dude.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me back. Always awesome.